Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of Engendered, our guest is Lita Hong Fincher, journalist, scholar, and author of the books Leftover Women and Betraying Big Brother. Through these books, Lita chronicles the ways in which Chinese post-economic reforms of the 1990s led to a state drive to incentivize marriage and its subsequent awakening of China's urban-educated women. We speak with Leda about the struggles that Feminist Five and other leading Chinese activists have faced in betraying Big Brother, and why and how the rise of a Chinese feminist consciousness is important to other feminist movements, from Me Too to workers' rights to leveraging the power of women's anger to building solidarity across borders. Welcome, Leda. Thank you so much for having me, Terry. Before we get started, I want to situate our conversation in the context of some of the data you shared in your books. Why should we care about Chinese women and whether they are engaged in the global effort of feminist consciousness raising and resistance? And your answer is that there are 650 million women or one-fifth of the world's female population living in China. I think that's as good a reason as any. Any effort for women in the Western world in the United States to achieve gender equality will be stronger if we can build alliances with, with women across the ocean. And the pushback against patriarchal authoritarianism in China can positively, hopefully, push back against growing authoritarianism in the United States. Is there anything else you'd like to add to that statistic uh, as to why we should care about women in China? Well, I suppose I'm... Uh, not that comfortable with the idea that the United States is the center of the universe, um, and therefore we should only care about women in China insofar as they affect the United States. So that said, absolutely. I mean, China is the world's second largest economy. It will at some point overtake the U.S. to become the world's largest economy. Uh, its geopolitical might is increasing pretty rapidly. You can see that by the year um, with a lot of these initiatives that Chinese government is pushing, like the Belt and Road Initiative, pouring you know millions or billions of dollars into these massive in- infrastructure developments all around the world. They're in many ways buying influence with a lot of developing countries. They're even buying influence in the United States, and we can see that, you know, in many ways. I don't want to get too off topic. That's an entirely different topic. But we should care about the state of women in China, but we should care about the condition of women and girls all around the world. And I really think that part of American women's fight for our own rights here in this country should really be linked with the fight for women's and girls' rights in many other countries as well. Can you give our listeners some context to the historical and social factors that coalesce to bring about this phenomenon of the leftover women and why China has embraced this as a propaganda issue? Well, first of all, I came across this term when I was interviewing women uh, because I wanted to find out 
why it was that so many... I, I started out uh, focusing on the purchasing of marital property. And that was my primary research interest. So I was doing interviews with men and women. And then and then several women mentioned that they made these economic compromises in buying property, buying marital property or getting married, because they didn't want to be seen as a shengnu, as a leftover woman. And that uh, be, after several women mentioned that term to me as one of the reasons why they were making all these excessive compromises in getting married, um, then I started researching the origins of this term. So it, it turns out that um, the term was officially uh, defined by the Chinese government in 2007. And then it was rolled out uh, repeatedly in all these propaganda campaigns and all these news reports published by the People's Daily and by Xinhua News. And they even sub created these subcategories of leftover women, starting from women age 25. Um, you know, re really shockingly sexist, um, saying that these women are never going to find a man because they're too picky, they're too greedy, they're, ref they're refusing to lower their standards in searching for a husband. Um, and it turns out that this term started being aggressively pushed through Chinese government propaganda just a couple of months after the state council, which is China's cabinet, came out with a big new population announcement warning that China's population quality or suzhi was too too low, that China had a problem with not enough so-called high-quality people in its population, gao suzhi. And so it, it was very important for different government agencies to try to increase the population quality. And so I, I just made a, uh, the kind of deductive leap that, well, if their urgent priority is to increase the population quality, and one of the reasons why this was seen as a problem was also in this population announcement was also the sex ratio imbalance. Currently, there are over 30 million more men than women, and that's largely due to this draconian so-called one-child policy that was in force for over 35 years um, that resulted in really egregious abuses of women's rights, like forced, you know, abortions, even infanticide of girls, or mass insertion of IUDs into women, millions of women to, you know, get them to have fewer babies. And as a result of that, because Chinese families prefer boys to girls, you now have a huge surplus of men. At the same time, because of advances in higher education, this should be seen as a really positive development, that record numbers of Chinese women are now college-educated or maybe even have a master's degree. So you have more and more women who are educated, more and more young women in their 20s who are quite well-educated. And then you also have tens of millions more men in China than women. Then you had this big government initiative to so-called increase the population quality. And this was related to a long-time tradition in China of eugenics that is was very explicit in Communist Party history dating all the way 
back to the revolution and even before, where there was this belief that some people are just higher quality than others. In the government's view, the women who are considered to be high quality are the women who are getting these college degrees and master's degrees. But those are the women who are increasingly turning their backs on marriage. They don't want to get married so early because they have their own aspirations. They want to get a you know great job or maybe they want to go abroad and further their educations. They don't want to just marry as soon as they graduate from college and then start having children. So that's all related to this new, the term leftover women as a propaganda tool to put women in educated urban women, Han Chinese women in their 20s to push them into getting married. And now I see uh, in recent years that they're pushing these women to have two babies instead of one because a couple of years ago, the Chinese government ended its one-child policy and now it's aggressively pushing a two-child policy. So rural women obviously aren't part of this propaganda because they're not going to be producing high quality babies. Is that the implication? Well, um, it's not actually the propaganda, the two child policy propaganda also extends to the rural population. But if you look at the sophisticated propaganda that's coming through TV, magazines, through the news, popular popular culture, that's really aimed at the urban population of Han Chinese women who have gone to college. That's the priority of the Chinese government is to get those women, because they're so-called high quality, to get them to be having more babies because the rural Rural women in China have long been having two babies, even through the most draconian enforcement period of the one-child policy. One child is kind of should be in quotation marks because really, you know, most families in the countryside were having two babies, even through that, um, you know, harsh enforcement period. Um, and so that for, for rural families, it's not a really drastic change. Um, the drastic change is really for urban couples. And what are some of the ways in which the government has used policy to encourage marriage and to punish singledom and to encourage um, women to have babies in ur- urban areas? Well, I've been tracking this for quite a long time. So my first book, Leftover Women, really focused on the propaganda campaign to push educated Han Chinese women into getting married. The emphasis even then also was on scaring these women into thinking that they needed to marry early so that they could have babies during their so-called best childbearing years before they turned 30. So that kind of fear-mongering about, you know, oh, women, you better have a baby before you're too old while you're still in your 20s. That fear-mongering was already beginning, starting in 2007. Well, now, after 2016, the Chinese government ended its one-child policy. Now the propaganda is really aimed at getting these women to have two babies. First, they have to get married, so the marriage pressure is still there. And in fact, that's been ratcheted up as well because the Communist Youth League is now sponsoring mass matchmaking campaigns all across the country, mass matchmaking festivals targeting 
you know, college students and recent graduates of college to try to get them to pair up and marry. But the real target is, is to increase birth rates because overall, birth rates in China have been plummeting. Marriage rates are also falling. So the new propaganda of the last couple of years since the end of 2015 is really targeting educated Han Chinese women. And I give some examples of this in my new book, Betraying Big Brother. So for example, you know, I found People's Daily or Xinhua News articles that were trying to get college women, I mean, women who are still in their late teens, who've just started college, to get them to consider getting married and having one or two babies while they're still in college, claiming that if they marry and have their two babies, by the time they start looking for their first job, it'll be easier for them to get employed. It's just the reasoning is totally bizarre. <laughs> and some of the pictures are really very creepy, Handmaid's Tale-esque pictures showing, you know, pregnant women, a really beautiful woman with a graduation gown and mortarboard on her head who already has two children or has one child and then she's already, you know, visibly pregnant with a second child. And that this is being presented as a, as a really um, uh, appealing role model. But actually, young women in China, by and large, are really rejecting that kind of ridiculous propaganda. But that's not stopping the Chinese government. It's still churning out this kind of propaganda. What about in terms of policy? What are the financial incentives or disincentives? For single women, for example, you couldn't have a child on your own for house registration reasons, right? So can you talk about some of the ways in which a woman having agency over her own body, over, over her own decision to marry or when to marry, when to have a child, if to have a child, these are all discouraged based on the logistics of what kind of access she or her child may have to basic services? Right. So I make the argument that actually it's a deliberate policy on the part of the all-male elite Communist Party leaders to subjugate women, to reduce women to the role of dutiful wife and mother. And so with that, that basic principle, which, which is very patriarchal, then marriage is seen as a very stabilizing institution because it's seen as conducive to political stability. If you push women and men into these marriages, they're heterosexual. It has to be between a man and a woman. Same-sex marriage is illegal. And then only within the institution of marriage are they really allowed and encouraged to have children. That means single women face enormous difficulties if they want to have uh, a baby. Some of, some single women do manage to have babies, but they're really penalized for it in various ways. So first of all, artificial uh, reproductive technologies are currently banned for single women. Single women right now in China have to go abroad if they want to freeze their eggs even. And single women who have babies are often subject to fines, uh, various regulatory fines. They find it very difficult to get huko uh, or household registration for their baby. So that's a huge disincentive for any single woman 
who's thinking about having a baby on her own. Um, so that that also pushes a lot of women into to getting married just because they want to avoid these all these penalties. Kit, can you talk about the household registration? What kind of why that's sure. important? Well, um, household registration huko is something that is part of your identity card that is given to you, supposed to be given to you at birth. And it says that you belong to a certain place. Um, so maybe it's your hometown. And most of the times it would be your hometown, but not always. So it's very much a class divider. Whatever your household, wherever your huko is, your household registration is going to uh, severely limit your life prospects depending on you know, where you were born or, but even if you're born in a city, let's say you're the child of a migrant worker working in Beijing, that child cannot get a Beijing hukou by and large. So that means that if the child doesn't have a household registration in Beijing, that means that they can't go to public school. They can't receive, you know, medical care from doctors. They have to pay all these extra fees that are really incredibly burdensome for somebody who's poor. And so it's uh, effectively a way to stratify society based on your location, effectively class discrimination. And it's very, very rigid. So that kind of discrimination also ends up discriminating against women in many ways. It's yet another barrier to women's ability to purchase homes where they want to. One of the arguments that you make in your book, Leftover Women, is that property laws in China kept Chinese women from benefiting from the largest real estate appreciation in the country's history, and therefore exacerbated an already troubling gender wealth gap. Could you walk us through some Chinese history and how Chinese women's rights, and in particular, the property ownership laws have changed over time? If you don't mind, let's start with the Song Dynasty. You have shared how property ownership has been the most permissive then for Chinese women. What kinds of property rights did women have during the Song Dynasty? I actually was, I alluded a little bit to the Song Dynasty in my book, Leftover Women, just to show that there were women back then, which was uh, over a hun many hundreds of years ago, who were already fighting using the law to fight for their rights to property ownership, which I found to be astounding and sometimes winning cases. And I, I was just contrasting that situation many hundreds of years ago with the situation today in China where women's rights to uh, property are actually being rapidly eroded and that market reforms have been a major factor in, in shutting women off from their right to own property and land. So I, I think it's more helpful to focus on recent history in China to understand that um, the nature of property ownership, particularly following the communist revolution, that upended all people's relationship to private ownership. And, and the Communist Party abolished private property. And so from 1949 um, onwards, housing and property was allocated by the government and people didn't have to pay for housing or they paid a, you know, a 
in minuscule amount. And so under the planned economy, the notion of uh, property um, being a source of wealth was pretty much non-existent. And so that changed radically with the privatization of housing that really took off at the end of the 1990s and into the 2000s when China began to build up a market, a real estate market. So property went from, um, in the early communist era, being worth absolutely nothing or almost nothing to being worth several decades later in the 2000s being worth astronomical sums of money. And so the development of the real estate market in China was really what I believe is probably the world's largest and most rapid accumulation of residential property wealth in human history. And so property wealth Today, residential property um, is worth well over 30 trillion U.S. dollars now. And what I did, in it was part of my Ph.D. research, um, which I, I also included in this book, Leftover Women. But I wanted to understand why it was that most residential property is owned by men. And it's a very complicated dynamic, but, um, but, but, but to simplify it, basically I've found through the course of interviewing a lot of people, both men and women in, in different cities, but focusing on Beijing and Shanghai, where property is uh, the most expensive in the country, that basically wealth within the family, money within the family, tends to flow towards men. And so there are so many different ways in which that happens. So, for example, a young woman who is engaged to to be married comes under a lot of pressure to purchase a marital home. A lot of the young women I interviewed actually handed over their life savings to their fiancé or their boyfriend in order to make a down payment on a marital home that was then only registered in the man's name. Or a, a sister, if she had a brother, her sister, the sister would be pressured by her parents to give money to her brother so that the brother could buy a home that would then be owned by him and in his name. Um, and the parents would be very reluctant to help their daughter. And I even found cases where only daughters, their single children with no siblings, were pressured by their parents. Um, these daughters were pressured by the parents to give money to a male cousin to help that man buy a home in his name. And so, first of all, it's related to this rapid development of a real estate market, but then it's related to these strong patriarchal norms where the man is supposed to be the head of the household. He's supposed to be the owner of property. And so those are just some of the ways in which women in China have been uh, largely shut out of the biggest accumulation of residential property wealth in history. So what you're saying is that basically after the market reforms, due to the rapid economic growth of China and these changes in property laws, that women were left out of the accumulation of wealth. Yes. One thing that I uh, also should add is that the law did change, that in 2011, the Supreme People's Court in China um, came out with a 
due judicial interpretation of the marriage law. That was really important as well because prior to that point, marital property was considered to be common property, um, to be split between the husband and wife in the event of a divorce. Following this new judicial interpretation issued in 2011, was drastically simplified um, and it's the law was extremely vague, but it said that whoever owns the property, whoever owned the property before marriage gets to keep the property in the event of a divorce. Whoever's name is on the deed gets to keep the property. But that ends up in practice hurting virtually all women because of the fact that most residential property is still owned formally owned by men. But in fact, behind the scenes, women are contributing in many, many different ways to the purchase of this home. And so, but then women are losing the most valuable asset they'll they'll probably ever have in their lifetimes if they get a divorce. When you talk about the cultural trend uh, and pressure for women in China to have to give their savings and money to contribute to either the male of the family or to their husband purchasing the home, would you characterize that as a form of coercion? In many cases, yes. Uh, but I sometimes I wouldn't use the term coercion because there are so many different kinds of circumstances. Definitely pressure. I, I use the word pressure. Women come under pressure from um, society because of these norms that the man is supposed to be the homeowner. He's supposed to be the head of the household. Um, there's also this norm that the man is, or this, this, it's actually a myth, but widely believed in China that a man, if he doesn't own a home, will be unable to attract a bride. But because of this this myth or this belief that is widely shared, uh, that means that a lot of Chinese parents, in fact, I would say most, who can actually afford to pay for property at all, and if they have a son, they're going to save up money to try to buy a home for their son. Um, so that is pressure. The woman, when she marries, comes under intense pressure to first of all allow the man she's marrying to register his name only on the property deed and therefore he he's the only one who's formally recognized as the owner of the home um, and, and she may come under pressure directly from the man's parents from her future in-laws or her, cur her current in-laws they may become they may become very coercive they may s say to her look, if you don't agree to this, then he's not going to marry you. Maybe the man himself will say, you know, I won't marry you unless you agree to let me um, have sole ownership of this property. But then, of course, the question comes back to the woman's agency. The woman could always walk away from that marital relationship. But then she comes under pressure from her own parents which is intense pressure as well, to get married. And this is why I named the book Leftover Women, because leftover women, or shengnu, is a commonly used term that has been strongly pushed through Chinese government propaganda to stigmatize single women. And so uh, th this, this 
notion that single women over their mid mid 20s or late 20s um, are not going to be able to find a husband and that they're going to be ostracized um, because they're not married. That, that pressure um, pushes a lot of women to make these excessive compromises just so that they can get married. Um, and these compromises are extremely financially costly because of the strong norm of home ownership in China. What's your opinion about how Chinese women view the myth that men are more valuable if they have property ownership? Well, I write about this quite a lot in Leftover Women, my first book, um, where I deconstruct a lot of these myths. That I mean, there are so many really sexist myths, um, completely unscientific unfounded statistics that are passed off as science by largely state media outlets like People's Daily or Xinhua News. And then they end up getting picked up as fact and distributed by foreign news organizations as well. These are myths such as, well, one widely quoted statistic, which is not real, is that 70% of Chinese women will only marry a man if he owns a home. I actually looked into the origins of that claim, and it's completely untrue. I mean, it's based on deeply flawed poll that was deliberately worded out of a very long set of questions about love and marriage. These claims are completely unscientific. So in the research that I did, I found that it was the reality was actually the complete opposite, that actually women frequently marry men who don't own any property. They frequently marry men who own, uh, who make a lot less money than they do. Um, Yes, there are some women who are looking to marry a wealthy man, but actually um, the primary driving force Um, in in young people getting married and pushing women into marrying when they actually don't even like the guy, and this is really very sad but very common, is that the woman is made to feel that she has to get married and that, that she has to leave her name off the deed in order to make either the man feel more manly or because of pressure from his parents. And then all of these new regulations in China that keep coming out, a lot of the regulations, even though they appear to be gender neutral in effect, really discriminate against women's rights to property ownership. And so it's it's very complicated and very detailed. There are so many factors at play, societal, you know, individual, economic. Moving on to your current book, Betraying Big Brother. Can you elaborate on the backstories of the Feminist Five and briefly share the confluence of events that led to their arrest and ultimately 37-day incarceration? Sure. For several years prior to 2015, there there were um, a few dozen, maybe about 100 feminist activists in China who were regularly putting on um, what they called acts of performance art to highlight various abuses of women's rights. So, you know, they would do things like parade down a downtown street in Beijing, wearing white wedding gowns stained with fake red 
paint or fake red blood saying that, you know, love is no excuse for violence. It was a protest against the epidemic of domestic violence in China, things like that. These feminist activists, they avoided really incredibly politically sensitive issues. They always picked issues that they thought wouldn't be seen as confrontational or wouldn't be seen as opposed to the Communist Party. And they didn't get into any trouble, really. I mean, occasionally they were questioned a little bit by the police. But that drastically changed. On the eve of International Women's Day, March 6, 2015, these feminist activists in several different cities in China were planning to celebrate International Women's Day by handing out stickers against sexual harassment on subways and buses. But they weren't able to even carry out that activity because Chinese police in all these different cities rounded up feminist activists and detained them and interrogated them. After a day, the police focused on five young women and in different cities uh, brought the women to the same detention center in Beijing and held them there, subjected them to all different kinds of mistreatment that I outline in my book. Um, this was a huge turning point for women's rights activism in China. Because prior to this point, feminism itself wasn't seen as any threat in any way to the Communist Party. So this was a marked departure from what had happened before. So now these five young women had been jailed, and it looked as though they could face prison sentences of five years or even more for disturbing the social order. So at the time, clearly the Chinese authorities had begun to identify feminism as a potential threat to the Communist Party, and, and they thought they could wipe out the possibility of a large-scale feminist movement by just jailing these five young women and sending a warning to other feminists in China. But that move drastically backfired because these women became really famous. They became known as the Feminist Five. They attracted a huge amount of international news attention. There were prominent politicians around the world who were condemning the Chinese government for jailing these women. And also it was completely hypocritical of the Chinese government because the government itself officially says that it supports gender equality, that it is opposed to sexual harassment. So the government came under intense media and diplomatic pressure. There was a lot of social media activism inside China that was censored outside China. And after 37 days, the authorities released these five women. But that, that was only the beginning of a really systematic new crackdown on all forms of women's rights activism across China that continues to this day. And now it's, you know, over four years later, and the crackdown is still continuing. But actually, the feminist movement has really grown in China. And the jailing of the Feminist Five marks what I believe to be the actual birth of a potent political feminist movement that the Chinese Communist Party, the all-powerful, the most powerful authoritarian regime in the world, is really struggling to control this women's rights movement in China. 
What are some of the reasons that the government targeted these women? They were all single at the time, right? No, one of the women uh, is married and has a child, okay. and the rest of them are single. So, so the other than which one was married uh, at the time? Uh, Wu Rongrong. Okay. Um, so other than Wu Rongrong, were the other four targeted in some ways because they were perceived as being non-compliant with the government's goal to reduce leftover women? I think it's all related to this overall threat of the idea of feminism that really is striking at the heart of communist patriarchal control, patriarchal authoritarian control of the population. Because the government really wants women to be very obedient, to play a very docile role, to play the role of wife and mother, that, yeah, feminism completely demolishes that whole idea that women need to be married, that women need to have babies. The whole idea of feminism is that women should be able to make their own decisions about their bodies and their lives. Uh, that's basically it. And that is very threatening to the Chinese government. So I don't think that the government was particularly concerned about the fact that the women were single per se. All of these women were in some format or another feminist activists. They were engaged in very effective, well, somewhat effective, I, I should say. It, it's become much more effective since, uh, since the Feminist Five became famous. But you know, they were involved in street activism that was designed to raise awareness about gender inequality, about sexism, about, you know, sexual violence, about sexual harassment, about the low status of women in Chinese society. And um, the, these women were organized. And that's another key reason why they were perceived to be threats is because they were able to mobilize other people to join in their activism. But actually, the effectiveness of these women's organization has only increased exponentially since um, the jailing of these five women. And now you have this incredible momentum of women's rights, uh, growing women's rights awareness on the part of the general population. And you see that expressed in so many ways, like, um, you know, various forms of Me Too activism on China's social media. So what originally was kind of a fringe element, there weren't that many feminist activists in China before the Feminist Five were jailed. Now there are so many women across China who proudly claim the label of feminist. Oh. How are you identifying them as being feminists? Is it through the social media accounts in their profile or? Well, I mean, that's, that's a start. Just if you look at the numbers, I haven't done a quantitative study of this, by the way. And that I really hope that more people do a lot more research. And I think that they will. So I can't tell you, well, how many people because it's not just women either. There are there are men who are really enthusiastic about feminism. How, I mean, how many people have started social media accounts labeled 
feminist in in the handle, in the Weibo handle or the WeChat handle. Um, of course, Weibo is China's equivalent of Twitter, but that's just one indication of the popularity of feminism. Um, but much more broadly, beyond the label of feminist, if you take away the word feminism and you just look at how many women all across China are beginning to speak out about their problems with sexism, their encounters with sexual harassers, either you know in the workplace, in you know on university campuses. Um, you could look at, for example, last year, 2018, in April, there was a huge wave of petitions at dozens of universities across the country, where thousands of Chinese students, both women and men, were signing their real names to these Me Too-like petitions, demanding that their university take sexual harassment seriously. Um, it was a form of organized collective action. And this is really rare in China. So if you if you take away the label of feminist, then the community of of women in particular, but also men who are much more vocal about standing up for women's rights, standing up against gender injustice or you know gender inequality, sexism, sexual violence, it's, it's pretty clear that there's a huge amount of momentum. Is there a difference between Chinese women's willingness to be vocal and speak out against systemic sexism, let's say sexual harassment or discrimination in the workplace or street harassment, like you said, or sexual violence, rape culture, for example, versus being able to speak out about their individual relationships and domestic violence? Yeah, up until really the last year, it was just incredibly rare, if not impossible. To find a woman, or man for that matter, but women are the majority of victims of intimate partner violence or sexual violence. It was almost impossible to find a woman who was willing to go public about her own experience with gender-based violence. But in the last year now, you've had quite a few women who've summoned up the courage to speak out, to talk about their own personal experience, and it's truly extraordinary. Now, this is something that people outside China probably can't appreciate unless they understand just how heavily monitored and surveilled the Chinese population is. So there's no internet freedom. There's very heavy censorship. So it's really difficult to to get past those internet censors, especially because the censors are now attuned to feminist issues. I mean, feminism itself has become a politically sensitive keyword. There was just a, a study released recently by the University of Hong Kong that said that the Me Too hashtag was one of the top ten most censored topics on WeChat. In 2018, which is really astounding,、um, given that you know what we usually think of as being incredibly politically sensitive are things like the Tiananmen massacre, or independence for Taiwan, or for Tibet, or Xinjiang, the mass incarceration of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Well, 
the fact that the Me Too hashtag was one of the top 10 censored topics on WeChat, which is, you know, this hugely popular messaging app, also is a very hard indicator of this incredible growing awareness about the depths of sexual violence in Chinese society and the fact that you have a real critical mass of largely women, but also men, who are willing to speak out about their own experiences. This is really a a remarkable development. In your uh, most recent book, you talked about the American Kim Lee and her widely covered divorce case with a Chinese language instructor. What role did that case have in opening up the dialogue for Chinese women to talk about their own domestic violence situations? Well, I actually wrote a lot about Kim Lee's domestic violence case in my first book, in Leftover Women. And she, as an American woman married to this Chinese celebrity, Li Yang, who was very famous in China for his crazy English, crazy tactics to learn English that were, you know, extremely popular that made him a multimillionaire. She posted photographs of her battered face, very badly bruised, right after he had beaten her one time and said she she had had enough. She posted it on Weibo and then she became a, a mini celebrity in China because no other no Chinese woman dared to do that because, you know, she would just repercussions were just far too severe. So it kind of took this American woman with all of her privilege and protections as an American citizen, she was able to speak out about this issue, to speak about her personal experience. And and that did mark a shift that was very important in awareness about intimate partner violence being a really serious but very common crime phenomenon in China. And in fact, it was also related to the early development of these young feminist activists who were really supportive of Kim Lee's lawsuit against her husband. And a Beijing court actually made a landmark ruling in her case and ordered one of the country's first ever restraining orders against her husband. So that was a really important case that led to this 2016 landmark new law, an anti-domestic violence law that was enacted by the Chinese government. With the new cases of, there are so many now, so many young women in particular are speaking out about sexual violence, not so much about intimate partner violence, That's still really difficult. It's still not that easy to find women who are going public about their experiences with that. But um, So in other words, the 2016 domestic violence law hasn't really been used in any significant way to either prevent or enforce crimes that have been done. Well, this is something that I write about in my second book is why is it that the Chinese government enacted this landmark law, the anti-domestic violence law, uh, its first ever 
in history, and yet it hasn't enforced the law because part of the law means that victims of intimate partner violence are able to uh, get a restraining order on their abusers. But it's extremely difficult for women, largely women who are the victims of this kind of violence, it's extremely difficult to get a restraining order. And so I looked at uh, studies of the enforcement, the implementation of the anti-domestic violence law, especially the work of a Chinese feminist scholar, Feng Yuan, who's been following this extremely closely. And it's really shocking to see how little difference this law has made. And that was one of the reasons why I came to the conclusion, which I write about in my second book, Betraying Big Brother, that the Chinese government has no intention of implementing the anti-domestic violence law. And the reason is because it doesn't want to interfere with men who abuse their wives. Because if it were actually to enforce this law, it would mean the government would have to go in there and actually issue restraining orders to, you know, tens of thousands of men all across China would be entering the private lives and marriages, um, you know. So the government relies on, it, it doesn't just turn a blind eye to violence against women. It actually depends on Private violence against women, women take, you know, violence against women happening in their own homes committed by their intimate partners. That way that contains the violent to the institution of marriage. It keeps it from destabilizing society and it keeps, you know, it kind of satisfies the violent urges of all of these men. They can take out their frustrations on you know, on their women, as opposed to taking to the streets and demanding uh, that the government do something for them. So I think it's a key element. This is why misogyny and the subjugation of women are key elements in upholding Communist Party rule. The underpinnings of the authoritarian state in China are strongly patriarchal. They're based on the subjugation of women. So am I to understand that all of these policies are basically used as a guide to uphold their power and the implication that leftover women in economic policies encouraging women to marry and to have children actually help support the economic stability and growth of the country, that that's just a guise for for maintaining power. Well, yeah, this is the thing. I mean, it's not all about economic growth either. Economic growth is, of course, an important goal of the Chinese government. But they're the most important consideration of all of these old men in power is to stay in power. The most important consideration is the survival of the Communist Party so that all these men can stay in power, political stability. If the government were really concerned about maintaining rapid economic growth, it would only stand to reason that they would want to encourage more women to participate in the workforce, and they would want to eliminate systemic gender discrimination against women in hiring and promotion. They would want to 
you know, go after abusers of women so that they can unleash the, the untapped potential of women for China's economic development. And if you just look to China's neighbors, Japan and South Korea, that's what Japan and South Korea are very strongly patriarchal countries that are now struggling with, you know, they're realizing that they need to increase women's participation in the economy and the workforce, and they're trying to do things to increase, you know, female labor force participation. The Chinese government is doing the exact opposite. It's actually saying, first of all, female labor force participation in China is rapidly falling relative to men's labor force participation. Um, the government doesn't see that as a problem. In fact, it's doubling down on pushing this sexism, pushing women, educated, talented, you know, incredibly capable women, pushing these women to return to the home, to get married early in their 20s, ideally, and to have two babies. And I think that that's related to political stability, to upholding the rule of the all-male elite Communist Party leaders. As part of conducting interviews for your book, Betraying Big Brother, you share how the experience of interviewing many of these feminists helped dislodge some traumatic experiences that you had yourself experienced decades earlier. What kind of role did that connection to your experience and the experiences of your interviewees in your book have in changing your position at all from being an external reporter to being an advocate for uh, these positions? Well, I mean... I write about this a little bit in Betraying Big Brother. My first book I was written very much from the point of view of a detached observer who didn't have a stake in what was happening to all these women in China, even though I, I am actually Chinese-American. My mom is Chinese. You know, China is a big part of my identity. I've been going there all my life. Um, I have, you know, a lot of Chinese family. I feel very my 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 mother is a very traditional Chinese mother actually. So I really can relate as a Chinese American woman. I'm a US citizen, but I'm also, you know, I can relate very strongly to all of the troubles of a lot of women in China even though, you know, they're living in a police state. So, but the thing is, when I was interviewing these women about their persecution by the Chinese security apparatus and all the different kinds of mistreatment they went through, they were really, all of them were really traumatized by their mistreatment. I, and I detail it a lot, how they were really brutally interrogated and psychologically manipulated and, you know, some would call it torture. There were very harrowing experiences. And in the, in the course of doing the interviews and then transcribing the interviews and translating the interviews, which I did the translations all myself. So I had to listen to these recordings a, a lot, I'm <laughs> repeatedly, to, to do them justice to make sure I got every detail right. And it really did dislodge these long-buried memories of my own sexual assault when I was 15 that I had just kind of ignored 
it's not that I totally forgot about it, but I wasn't thinking about how that affected me. And it was profoundly traumatic for me. And so I actually started seeing a therapist when I was living in Hong Kong at the time, because all of the women that I were, was interviewing were dealing with post-traumatic uh, stress and describing it to me. And I thought, you know, I have my own post-traumatic stress from uh, all, you know, this kind of rather brutal gang sexual assault when I was a pretty young girl. And so it really struck me on a visceral level, very personally, that we have vast differences. I'm a very privileged American middle-class person, woman. I've been very lucky um, with the opportunities that I've received in life. And yet there are these ways in which all of us, the women who are being persecuted in China or have been sexually abused in a, in a police state. And then, and then I started thinking about women all around the world, that there are all these commonalities that simply by virtue of our sex, patriarchy is global and the oppression of women and girls is global. It exists everywhere on our planet. Sexual violence is everywhere and women and girls are the majority of the victims. Although, of course, men and boys are victims as well. But it's there, you know, it is gender based violence. Rape of women is a common weapon of war. That this is a global, deeply systemic problem of patriarchal oppression, and that it really is important for us to form these closer bonds of solidarity with other women around the world because we do have a lot of things in common despite differences in our countries and our societies and laws and privileges. I really like how in your book, Betraying Big Brother, which I invite all listeners to read, um, how you describe the different tactics of China you know, as a state apparatus and how it used um, various tools and tactics to intimidate the Feminist Five, to use their family members. Of course, they were physically isolated for 37 days and to regulate them to the torture. And I thought that those tactics were very familiar because they are common in intimate partner violence relationships as coercive control. So I'm wondering what lessons they can draw from the experiences of these Chinese feminists in applying to their own lives and how they view their access to freedom in what we still call a democracy. Well, I do think that American women, I mean, I would hope women around the world can learn a lot from the stories of these feminists who are persecuted in China. They're not just persecuted, they're also fighting. They're fighting against, really, the world's most powerful authoritarian system. There are so many lessons to be learned. Let me just give you one example, though. When I actually begin the book with a description of one of the feminist five, and how she was treated by security agents when she was first detained and put into isolation. It was in the middle of winter, and they took away, Wei Tingting is her name, 
the first thing that they did was confiscate her glasses. And Wei Tingting is practically blind without her glasses. And so she couldn't see anything. And so she, and, and then it was the middle of winter, they put her in this unheated cell. They also took away her snow boots and her coat. So she was freezing cold. She couldn't see anything. And then she was left alone in this cell. And she wrote a personal account of what happened to her online, which of course was deleted, but but she describes being overwhelmed by this sense of powerlessness and disorientation. And then she heard, she put her ear up against the wall of her cell and she heard the sounds of other feminists that she recognized. And then she called out to them to let them know that they weren't alone. And then then they started singing in jail, singing uh, various songs. And one of them was the feminist anthem about women's rights and feminist solidarity to the tune of Les Miserables. Do you hear the people sing? But it's, the feminists call it a song for all women. And I think there's a, just in that episode there, where you're, you know, these women are in being held in these isolation cells, and yet they're able to overcome their sense of extreme powerlessness through connections to each other. And also, so one of the lessons is we really need solidarity. We need to talk to each other and to support each other in times of trouble. That that is so important, the collective caring for each other. Also, what is it that we're fighting? Well, a friend of mine, Eileen Chow, who's a professor at Duke University, she was kind enough to read the first draft of my manuscript. And she said to me, you know, that scene of the security agents confiscating the women's glasses is really like a metaphor for the gaslighting of women everywhere. Because that's how women are undermined everywhere. Certainly in America, we experience it. You know, it's the, all the mansplaining, the people telling you, no, you're crazy. You're crazy, you woman. Just shut up. And it's only, you know, the man's point of view that is valid. And it's the, all of that gaslighting takes away your ability to see clearly. It takes away your ability to recognize that you're being oppressed and manipulated. And so it is a metaphor. I think there are a lot of references to glasses and being able to see these feminist activists. A lot of them wear glasses and they use that one of them also says, you know, she went to Taiwan and for the first time she was learning from feminists in the LGBTQ community. She came out as, as bisexual and she says it was like getting a new pair of glasses. She was finally able to see. Those are some of the lessons. But also just the sheer commitment to fighting oppression, that what these women in China are going through is just incredible. I mean, the hardship, the persecution, the harassment by this powerful state security apparatus 
it's just something almost unimaginable that when you read about what they, they're going through. And yet these feminist activists, almost none of them have actually said they want to give up their activism. They, they're living in an autocracy where they're not allowed to vote for their leaders. They have no say in, they don't have elections. They can't express themselves on the internet without being constantly censored and deleted. They're randomly subject to being thrown into detention or constantly being interrogated by police who come knocking on the door. They're constantly being thrown out of their apartments for being troublemakers. And yet they continue. They, they're able to, through their relationships with others in the feminist community and their friends, they rely on each other. They care for each other. They're, they're able to have fun in the struggle. They take care of themselves. They find joy. And that's why I named the book Betraying Big Brother. In fact, it was based on feminist Wei Ting Ting's account of dis rediscovering her sense of defiance while in jail. And she described it as the joy of betraying Big Brother. And there is a joy to be found. There is joy in joining forces with others in the struggle against injustice over the long haul. It may last beyond our own lifetimes, but it's worth doing and there is joy in the struggle. That reminds me of Adrienne Marie Brown's pleasure activism. So I agree, without joy, how can we sustain the struggle? Well, Thank you so much. This has been a very informative conversation, and it brings us to the end of our conversation where we ask every guest a series of questions that I've adapted from inside the actor's studio. First question is, what is at stake in this struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? Well, I think about this in the context of largely men, not giving a shit, if you excuse my language, about women's issues. Gender is widely regarded to be a marginal, a side issue. So what is it that is widely acknowledged to be an existential crisis for all of us in America and globally? It's this incredible assault on democracies worldwide. It's the global rise of authoritarianism. So many people talk about this. Oh, my God. You know, authoritarianism, fascism is on the rise. What are we going to do about it? And it's often in put in kind of a paralyzing way that, oh, my God, it's terrifying. There's nothing we can do about it. But actually, there's a lot we can do about it. And I believe that the Chinese feminist resistance to the patriarchal authoritarian state in China shows the way for us. This is key. Feminist resistance is key to fighting the rise of global authoritarianism. And it's at the center, it should be at the center of the fight to preserve democracy, to preserve our freedoms worldwide. What gives you hope? A lot of things give me hope. I'm always inspired when I look 
at the example of these Chinese feminists and what they're up against, you would think that there's just, there shouldn't be any hope there. It's a really grim situation. If you look at what the Chinese government is doing, you know, it's, it's just depressing on so many levels. And then you look at what these young women are doing in the face of what seems to be an impossibly bleak situation. And if they can find hope, enough hope and resilience to continue their fight, then we certainly can in the United States where we, yes, in the U.S., we have grave assaults on our democratic institutions, on women's rights. You know, we've got this recently, this wave of draconian abortion bans that are threatening women's rights, fundamental freedoms, our ability to control our own bodies are coming under unprecedented threat. There's no question. It's really alarming what is happening in America. But there is a lot of reason to to hope, especially in America, because we still have, you know, functioning rule of law. As much as the president is trying his best to get around the law, courts are working. We have investigations into his corruption. Um, We have elections. Just look at the midterm elections. There was a wave of, you know, record number of women of color were elected to the House of Representatives. You know, women are rising up in, in America, Um, We can protest in the streets. We can volunteer for organizations. We can speak our minds on social media. We have so many choices. There's so much that we can do to fight rather than wallow in misery and despair and say, oh, my God, it's all hopeless. There's nothing we can do. So I always derive a lot of hope and inspiration from the example of these Chinese feminists. And final question, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence? Well, the very first thing that we can do, I think it's happening already, is to tell our stories. If we want to, with the caveat, if we want to. I think the Me Too movement has been really important globally. It was founded by African-American rights activist Tarana Burke in 2006, and it went global, virally, at the end of 2017, it's still going. It's it's caught on in so many countries around the world. There are people who say, oh, what's the point of women telling their personal humiliating stories? The thing is, women are telling these stories because we want to. I've told a little bit of my story. I have a lot of other humiliating stories I haven't told yet, but I've told one of them. And to me, it's very freeing to because telling the story of something that caused me enormous shame for decades of my life that just oppressed me, that I, I that silenced me. It was very liberating for me to be able to, yeah, I mean, it opened me up to a lot of um, abuse online as well, but it was very liberating to me to be able to talk a bit about what happened to me when I was sexually assaulted when I was 15, because that happens to so, so many women and girls around the world. 
And I think that on, on an individual level, it can be really liberating. Now, that said, no, I don't think anybody should at all ever be pressured to tell their story. But I think that's a really important beginning because the more we understand how common this is, how common it is to be sexually abused, how incredibly widespread gender-based violence is in every country in the world, then we start to see the pattern and, you know, there is strength in numbers. I think we're already on the right track. Well... Thank you very much, Leda. And thank you for Leftover Women and Betraying Big Brother. I hope listeners can read them. Thanks so much, Terry. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at Q&A dot k-a-n-d-u-i-t dot com I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail dot com with your questions <laughs> <laughs>